This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. to the Math Ed Podcast. I'm Sam Otten. And I'm Chuck Munter. We're from the University of Missouri, and today we want to try a new type of podcast episode where we are going to debrief and reflect on the PMENA conference that just happened recently in Greenville, South Carolina. And we're going to talk a little bit about the PMENA conference overall, but first we want to acknowledge uh, the work that went in by all the folks who put on that conference. We had a really good time, a lot of good, fruitful conversations. Uh, we're going to bring some of that here. Um, but Tommy Hodges, George Roy, especially from the University of South Carolina, and Andy Tominski from Clemson, um, along with other volunteers and everything, to put on the good conference and have all of us come together in South Carolina. And one of those other workers, as I understand it, was uh, Jessica Allen, who's a doctoral student at the University of South Carolina, who apparently did a lot of work, especially towards the end, to pull things together. So what Chuck and I want to do here is just kind of go through the conference a little bit, and in case people aren't familiar with PME&A or haven't been able to go to it before, we want to give just a little bit of an overview of the conference. And full disclosure, I was on the steering committee um, for three years, and we are going to be hosting the next PME&A uh, in 2019 in St. Louis together. Um, we're organizing that with Xander Rajo and Amber Candela. So we, we are fans of this conference, and we're willing to kind of donate our own time to make it happen. Um, but some of the reasons that I love PME&A... It has an actual proceedings document, which I think is a really nice way to encapsulate the work that was shared and discussed at the conference, and it's a very citable kind of document. It's actually freely accessible as a PDF, it's on ERIC, it's on the websites, and that proceedings has page numbers for all of the articles, which I have found really, really helpful when I go to a good session or I talk to somebody about their ideas and I want to be able to cite it. I can actually cite it with a legit reference and page numbers, and I think that's a really nice way to carry the ideas from the conference forward into my own work. And not to mention, it's peer-reviewed. I found that sometimes I can cite someone's proceedings paper version while they are working on an elaborated version of that same manuscript, and I know that the the peer-reviewed proceedings version will stand in in the paper I'm writing, and I want to reference someone's ideas. One of the unique things about PME&A is that you write a paper... And you submit that as a proposal to the conference, but that paper has your ideas expressed fully or as fully as you can at the time, and that paper is reviewed. And if you're accepted into the conference, then that paper gets published versus most other conferences, or at least the other conferences I go to. You submit a proposal to speak at the conference, and if you get accepted, then you just come and you give your presentation. i got to say, it kind of holds me accountable then in my own presentation. I, I have to go back to my paper and make sure I'm actually following through on Yeah, that. there's kind of this continuity between what you wrote and what was reviewed is what gets published in the proceedings, and so there's kind of this expectation that that's what you present on. But it means you can have a little more faith in that proceedings paper because that was the thing that was reviewed mm-hmm. versus in AERA or NCTM or AMT or basically every other conference that I'm involved in. Nobody ever actually sees my proposal. Like, I I write a proposal of here's what I'd like to speak on. If I'm lucky enough to get into the conference, I can give a presentation, but nobody is able to see or compare against my initial proposal, which means your proposal can kind of be more, you know, half-formed. It can sort of be like, well, this is in progress, but I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I will by the conference date. PME&A, you actually have papers that are pretty usable, and they have kind of clear, to some extent, complete thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yes. So those proceedings are great. The conference itself is also one of our research-focused conferences. 
So the people there, they have data, they're analyzing it, they're asking research questions. There's a lot of discussion about the methodology that's used and the theoretical underpinnings, as opposed to some other conferences that might be more practitioner-based or a mix of kind of some research, some practice. You know, there's definitely a need for conferences where you can share teaching ideas or share ideas from your college classes. But PMNA is really more about sharing the research that you're working on. It's within a varied structure throughout the conference days, including a working group that it, that meets three times during the conference usually, mm-hmm. so that a group of people, even across years, can continue to come together to work on specific research areas that they have in common. Another thing about PMNA is that it's in the fall. So as your calendar gets full, it's nice to have a conference in the fall. And so for me, PMNA is the one that I always kind of put on my calendar for the fall. I really enjoy going to it, seeing the research that people are working on. In the spring, I think the NCTM Research Conference would be one that tries to be focused on research and takes place in the spring, and that one is you know, adjacent to the annual meeting with all the teachers coming in. So that one's a little bit different. But And in the wintertime, there's AMTE, mm-hmm. which is also a research conference, but focused a little more on the study of teacher education. Yeah, and also some practical sessions where people share things that they're trying in their teacher education or their work with pre-service teachers. Yeah, that's a good point. A conference for us as researchers of teacher ed and as practitioners of teacher ed. Right. Now with PMNA, this research-focused fall conference that has a paginated proceedings, another thing that I really appreciate about it is it's really made strives toward being inclusive. There's actually multiple languages included in PMNA. Um, you can submit in French, Spanish, or English. Now, most of the work is in English, but they have reviewers that can review French or Spanish, and there are Spanish sessions and so forth. So that, I think, has been a really good move in the last few years for PMNA. They've also tried to increase the uh, accessibility of the conference by offering a slew of scholarships now, like free registration. We started the program two or maybe three years ago now, and it's already up to like 30 scholarships that they give for people to be able to come. A lot of those go to grad students, but not entirely. Also some faculty that don't have other funding sources to travel can get that free registration which, you know, hopefully helps more people actually get access to the conference. What about the organizing structure of who hosts? Is that different from other conferences? Yeah, I mean, so like AMTE has, I think, like kind of a semi-permanent organizing team, and they kind of put it on for several years in a row. Um, NCTM has staff who are actually paid and help run the conference and things like that. PMNA, it's totally volunteers each year. So there's a hosting site. And that's volunteer folks like Tommy, George, and Andy that came together to do it this year. Um, We're going to do it next year, and then it'll be somewhere else in 2020 and somewhere else. So it really moves around to whichever site is willing to host and volunteer and put it on. And each time you're going to get a little bit of flavor from those local folks who are putting it on. Yeah, and it moves around North America, uh, predominantly in the United States, but sometimes to Canada, sometimes to Mexico. And that goes back to what PMNA stands for. So Yeah, we should probably <laughs> spell out the acronym. Yeah, it's much, much nicer to call it PMNA, as you'll find. But the uh, full title is the North American Chapter of the International Group for the Psychology of Mathematics Education. <laughs> so first of all, you, you flip that around and you put the PME first and the NA last and you just forget the IG for international group. Yeah, so this is just a North American chapter of the international group that does PME you know, worldwide. And a lot of the conversation is about the P, so that's the psychology of mathematics education. And when I was a grad student and I first heard about PMENA, I thought it had to be like psychological studies in math education and that that's what the conference was exclusively about. Mm -hmm. But I quickly found out like, oh, it's actually quite a bit more broad than that. It's basically 
all kinds of research in mathematics education. There's teacher ed research, there's equity research, social justice work, there is teaching and learning research, there's content-focused stuff, there's, it's basically the full scope of math ed research, you know, usually you can find some connections there at mm -hmm. PMNA. As uh, we learned at one of the plenaries, in fact, this year, there's been conversation in the past about dropping the P. Yeah. I can see the argument for dropping the P because it's no longer exclusive to psychology. I mean, it started in the 70s, right, spun out of ICMI mm -hmm. as the international group. And it was focused on the psychology of learning and teaching um, from our kind of, you know, historical roots in psychological studies. But it's no longer exclusive to psychology in any sense of the word. So I'm not sure that the, the P is doing much service. The only thing to me the P does is just mislead people if they're first learning about it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I'm not sure in what way it's helpful, but um, hasn't been formally discussed since 1996, according to Marta. Although after Marta mentioned that, some people were wondering if we could bring that discussion back up. Yes, uh, <laughs> that's Marta Seville, one of the plenary speakers at this year's conference. So yeah, let's get into the plenaries, actually. Let's start with Marta Seville, since we just mentioned her. Mm -hmm. uh, her plenary was on Friday, midday. Mm -hmm. Marta is a professor at the University of Arizona. Her research has attended to cultural, social, and language aspects in the teaching and learning of mathematics. In particular, she has worked on funds of knowledge. Mm -hmm. She began her talk by uh, looking at the proceedings, actually, of PMENA since when she started attending in 1989 uh, for the presence of the idea of equity in those proceedings. And... Uh, found very little early on mm -hmm. that it has increased in its presence. But she also pointed out that there's been no specific equity strand since 2012. And she asked whether that's because now it's threaded into everything we do mm -hmm. with this idea that we all do equity work. But then she asked, do we really all do equity work? Can we play a little excerpt from that portion of her address? Sure can. So equity is more present. That's, that's true, I mean, that's a fact. I'm not saying anything at all. Many more people are doing equity-related research work than when I started in the early 90s. As I alluded to, in 2017, the research commentary that we wrote, we write about four political ads in relation to the role of equity work in mathematics education research. We refer to intentional collective professional responsibility in addressing equity issues in our research, that so we should all be doing that. That research commentary, as well as other events such as funding agencies or conference proposals that ask to address equity, are making equity more central. On one hand, this seems like the right direction. I mean, who am I to argue that we shouldn't all be doing equity work since this is the work that I do? On the other hand, I'm concerned that we risk saying that everything is about equity now, that everybody does equity somewhere, somehow. And I have this experience with funds of knowledge. Everybody does uh, funds of knowledge, you know. You know, I, I find funds of knowledge cited here, cited there, and I'm not sure. Does everybody do, do funds of knowledge? Do we all do a work in equity? Do we risk watering down the complexity of this work by basically using it, you know, here and there? Yeah, this is a really good question, I think. Um, and it's something we've talked about when we're planning courses here. Like, should we have an, a course on equity? And then also thread it through other courses. Should we only thread it through all of the courses? You know, is it in some ways kind of like um, marginalized by putting it in its own category? Like I remember JRME when they were first starting to get more into equity-minded things. There were more equity-minded people on the editorial board. So then JRME had a special issue on equity. But then that felt like, well, wait, 
what about the regular issues of JRME? Are those not doing equity? Yeah, exactly. You know, like are are we only welcome equity research only welcome in the special yeah. issue that's marked equity? And it's just this big question for the field. I think it even shows up in practice in terms of like a school district uh, trying to work on issues of equity. Do they set up a uh, an equity office in the district leadership that attends to that, or is it the responsibility of all of the leaders in a school district to think about equity? Because in those cases, they can say we have an equity director now, so they'll take care of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that gets other people off the hook, maybe, right? Like, exactly. like it's not my job. Yeah. We have a person whose job. But if you don't have an equity director, then are all the other folks in all the departments stepping up and, and thinking about those? Yeah. And then from the perspective of research, I think there's also this question of who has the sort of title of being an equity researcher? Is it people who very explicitly put front and center a justice issue or a diversity issue or something? Or is it anybody doing research in math education? makes connection to equity and is it enough if they make a connection to equity or does it need to be front and center like well i'm reminded of last year's nctm research committee's report and they actually defined what criteria you'd have to hold yourself accountable to to be an authentic equity researcher Hmm. it was a fairly high standard i think so Hmm. perhaps there's other options in terms of what you just described whether equity is as you said front and center or whether Given the front and center topic you study, say proportional reasoning, mm-hmm. do you think about equity as it relates to that? Mm-hmm. It raises a, an interesting tension. We want as a field everyone to be thinking about equity, but we want them to do it well. Mm-hmm. And so who are, the, who are the folks who are in charge of being the arbiters of what is doing equity well? And how do we decide that as a field? Mm-hmm. I can say that in terms of how we've thought about our program here at at our university, mm-hmm. and also how we're thinking about organizing the strands for this conference next year. We've, yeah. We're kind of taking a both-and approach. Yeah. For the time being, let's let's make it a, a specific course for our doctoral students to take. Let's mm-hmm. make it a strand in the proceedings, but let's also ensure that it's throughout other courses and throughout other strands. Yeah. So, for example, at PMNA next year, we do have a strand on equity and justice, but then we also are going to have equity be a key word in the other strands right. so that you can kind of you know, make connections to it, even if it's not the sole focus or the central focus of your work. I'm curious to see how that will play out in terms of supporting people and identifying as I'm a researcher who puts equity issues front and center in my work. That's what I do research mm-hmm. on, as opposed to folks who, who want to think about their research interest and bring in an equity element, be sure that they are attending to that. Yeah. And I agree with Marta where she, you could kind of hear in her voice a little bit of concern about everything being called equity work, because that seems to water down. I think she said waters down. Mm-hmm the complexity and the real importance of people who are centrally focusing on equity, diversity, justice. So yeah, for me, I would not want to push towards everything having an equity tag. I feel like that's sort of not a true representation of what people's work actually is. Uh, And I think it does kind of downplay people who are truly doing something about equity or justice, like as the, the central focus. Now, Marta gave us a lot of other things to think about as well. One of the things that stood out to both of us when we were at the plenary um, from Marta was some comments that she had and some reflection that she's been doing about culturally relevant pedagogy and about taking mathematics topics and putting them in contexts that are relevant to people from different backgrounds, a diverse set of backgrounds, or or just the specific learners that you're working with, trying to make mathematics relevant to them by putting it in situations that will be culturally resonant. Um, but Marta asked kind of or pondered a little bit about that issue. Yeah. So I wonder, does the context have to be culturally relevant? Or, and more recently I've been thinking about this, is it about promoting cultural ways of being? 
are the norms that we put in place allowing the participation of all students. For example, I have seen students engaging in mathematics for the sake of mathematics with no apparent forms of knowledge content connection, except that they have been able to bring their home language, their ways of interaction in non-school settings, using humor, moving around the room, arguing, and yes, engaging in mathematical arguments. So I'm more intrigued by this more recently than perhaps the content itself, whether the content is, you know, forms of knowledge based, cultural, you know, grounded on their experiences, but more the way that they go about it. So these comments from Marta got me thinking quite a bit, and to me I made a connection to some of my own thinking about mathematical processes versus mathematical content standards. And I've always been drawn much more to a mathematical way of thinking or tackling a problem or seeing structure. That, to me, has always seemed much more important um, for the education system overall, from like pre-K on up versus a specific piece of content, like a specific formula that you've learned or you can apply, or a specific geometric object that you know about. For me, it's always much more important that people have a way of interacting with mathematics. And the way that I connect that to what Marta was saying was, she's now kind of asking the question of, is it maybe more about letting the student be themselves and bring their own cultural backgrounds and ways of interacting into the classroom? rather than trying to take every piece of math content and draw a line straight to something in their life. I appreciate the honest account she provides about the curriculum. Some mathematics is interesting in its own right as a very abstract thing that's just created just for fun, basically. I think all kinds of children can have fun engaging in those ideas, but only if they feel like they can be themselves while doing it. And so. Mm-hmm. Yes, as you said, I think she's asking the question of, as we go looking for where cultural relevance exists, does it exist in the content itself, or does it exist in the norms that we cultivate in a classroom through which students can be themselves and participate meaningfully? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's good news for especially high school or college mathematics teachers who I feel like too often are trying so hard. They, They create these contrived, fake word problems as if those become culturally relevant to children. Right. I think one of the big uh, challenges for trying to do culturally relevant pedagogy is, oh man, for every mathematical topic through this whole year, I have to somehow find a context from students' lives and then map it right to that. That's very hard, and I think a lot of times it does come off as contrived, and it sort of has maybe a backfire sort of effect. But taking mathematics and saying we're going to actually open the door and we're going to let more people into mathematics and let them be themselves while they're doing it, that to me seems like it has much higher likelihood of success. And as teachers, I think it reminds us that the basis of our work is in relationships with, with children mm-hmm. and with, with the students we teach and not with our content. Yeah, and not with the contexts that we try to like dress around our content. Right. It's with the actual people, those, those learners that are with you, yeah. Not to say you can't mathematize plenty about children's interests and lives and backgrounds. Yeah, but now there's not this pressure of having to do that for like the full curriculum. Um, Instead, it's more about the full child or the full learner. Yeah. In the plenary with Marta Seville was uh, Lori Rebell, who's a professor of math education at Brooklyn College and the City University of New York, and also, I think, affiliated with the University of Haifa. Um, But Lori also talked about this idea of What context are you using? How are you connecting mathematics content to people's lives? And whereas Marta focused on cultural aspects, Lori took it into a political 
realm. And mm-hmm. she argued that the cultural is political. Mm-hmm. And in particular, she suggested that what we choose to mathematize and how are political choices. And another question, um, do we use the context from the marketplace, sports, workplace, and home remodeling because we really think that this is what's going to inspire our children to be creative problem solvers, empathetic and kind human beings, and to be motivated to tend to the needs of our planet? So the idea here is that what we mathematize and how are political choices. Why are we remaining complicit, and we, I mean that we, um, in letting mathematics be used to exclusively support ideologies like individualism, capitalism, competition, and whiteness when we know that these ideologies are destructive? And as Lori was reflecting on her own work, she, uh, I really appreciated how she did some self-reflection and was thinking about are there some unintended consequences of her research. Um, Because she said that sometimes the political can unfortunately denigrate the cultural. And she talked about some of her own work that she's done in New York, where she looked at the mathematics of um, payday lenders or of pawn shops uh, or lottery tickets and like the odds of lottery tickets and things. But these are also institutions that are not equitably dispersed. They kind of show up in certain neighborhoods and certain um, and have racial dimensions to where they're placed. And she really thought about, okay, we as students and with the New York City students we can look at um, pawn shops or lottery tickets and learn about the mathematics behind that but she was afraid that that might inadvertently almost blame the victim or blame people who have systemically been kind of put in situations where pawn shops are a way of getting short-term loans. I'll let Lori kind of talk about how she's thought about the repercussions of that work. A commonality across all of these types of uh, social justice math investigations is that they present the issue as if the root of the problem were a lack of mathematical understanding, meaning that better math is the solution. I think in doing so, we are tacitly reinforcing our acceptance of a society that allows, supports, and even encourages these kinds of predatory systems that we know specifically prey on low-income people of color. Uh, one could argue that, like in my project, teaching young people to understand the lottery, uh, which necessitates various mathematical understandings, is a way to bolster them in this particular kind of democracy that we have. But it's one thing to support youth in navigating the world and its systems as they are, and it's another thing altogether to challenge what kind of democracy we, we actually want. This is another example of what Rochelle calls playing the game versus changing the game. I appreciated Lori providing this kind of critical reflection, and it was generous of her, I think, to use her own work to do that. I'm Mm -hmm. sure she could have chosen from plenty of uh, (laughs) other options of other people's work. But I did suggest to her afterwards that maybe she was being a little too hard on herself because I know, having read that article, that, uh, in fact, yes, they they went looking for ways that perhaps these uh, lending agencies were were negative in some ways for the community, but in fact found out that they actually provide a service sometimes, uh, opportunities to, to borrow money for folks who may not have access to a bank. And so in some ways they kind of reframed uh, them as seeing some assets. Mm-hmm. And if people are interested in Lori's work uh, in more detail, um, we've been 
you know, happy to have her on the podcast in the past. Um, episode 1801 is an interview with Lori about some of her work. And then episode 1808, we have a summary where Chuck actually summarized one of her recent studies that's even related to what she was talking about here. Mm-hmm. So people can uh, listen to that. And Lori also mentioned Rochelle, um, who's Rochelle Gutierrez, and um, we had her on the podcast back in episode 1605, and that's actually one of my favorite episodes. Um, Rochelle brings up a lot of really interesting things to think about, so if people are interested in this line of thinking and changing the game, playing the game kind of uh, tension, um, episode 1605 with Rochelle is another one that people can check out. So after Marta and Lori's talks, there were questions from the audience, and one of those produced one of my favorite moments from the conference, mm-hmm. I think. Both of these scholars had talked about doing this kind of work. And Lori, in particular, had shared at the outset of her talk a brief uh, description of the attacks that she had to endure based on one of the articles that she had published in, as she said, a peer-reviewed journal. Mm-hmm. And that was clearly uh, painful for her and, uh, and disconcerting possibly for folks who want to do equity, justice-oriented work in mathematics education, especially if they are a junior scholar and aren't uh, totally confident about their place in their institutions and in the field. And so a question afterwards got raised of when do you, if you are a junior researcher, take this up? And Marta and Lori actually had different answers to this. Mm -hmm. The question was, should you wait until tenure, basically? Mm -hmm. And I think that Marta suggested... Yeah, maybe you should wait. And uh, Lori said, no, don't wait. You've got this one life and you got to live it. Mm-hmm. I appreciated their responses. I appreciated that they were uh, differing in their perspectives. I, I found value in, in both of them. And I, and I feel like you could make an argument for either one. Yeah, and they did both recognize that different people will have different situations. You have you know, a different department chair, a different university culture, your own personal convictions are going to be different from person to person. So they both kind of said, you know, there's not one single answer, but they sort of said which way they lean. Like Marta says, well, I lean towards being strategic and waiting until you get tenure, and then you can kind of really have that protection to do some very um, innovative and critical things. Where Lori was saying, like, you know, maybe you should just go for it if that's what you feel is true to yourself. I found people continuing to chat about this, you know, afterwards. And uh, I I appreciated that these two veteran scholars were were willing to share these different opinions because um, I think a lot of times that can really spark good discussion. Yeah. So the conference's opening plenary was shared by Corey Drake from Michigan State and Elham Kazemi from University of Washington. That was Thursday evening. Unfortunately, I had travel (laughs) difficulties due to a snowstorm. You and a lot of other people, yeah. (laughs) Here in the St. Louis area. So, uh, Sam, uh, what did I miss? Yeah, so they shared this plenary in kind of an interesting way um, where they would trade off telling stories. And what they really wanted to do with this plenary, or what I took it as, was they wanted to bring students and learners' personal experiences to the foreground. And Corey talked about how in their project they were doing this research, and they were looking at teacher moves or teaching practices, they were looking at student outcomes, you know, there's a lot of attention on student achievement. But when you look at those things, you can sometimes miss the students' emotions or their personal experiences inside the math classrooms or as math learners. So I'll let Corey kind of talk a little bit about how this came about. The work on students' experience also has implications for our work as researchers studying teacher learning and practice. In fact, it was in the context of the development of ambitious instruction project in which my colleagues and I are studying novice teacher practice that Elham, a member of our project's advisory board, suggested the focus of tonight's paper. As our research team was exploring various protocols 
for studying and measuring teaching practice, we asked Elham what we might be missing when viewing teaching through the lens of these protocols. She suggest, suggested that student experience was notably absent and asked the question at the center of this paper. What if we focused on student experience along with teacher performance when studying teacher practice? How would that change the ways we study teaching or work with teachers to improve their practice? The studies of teaching and our own work as teacher educators can benefit from more attention to the nature of student experience in mathematics classrooms as a lens for understanding teacher practice and teacher learning. When we make this claim, we want to make sure to note that attending to student experience is not the same as attending to student outcomes or achievement. Many studies have already tried to link teacher practice and student achievement. Instead, we are interested in understanding teaching in terms of student experience which is broader than student achievement or even student learning, and also takes into account students' experiences of mathematics in relation to identity, participation, motivation, and agency. So yeah, then the, the substance of their plenary, they just shared multiple stories. They drew from several different people's existing research, but they would pull out from it um, a particular student's or learner's story. So there was a story about um, a student who wasn't always comfortable speaking, but they were listening and they were making connections. Um, but they're, you know, under what conditions did they feel comfortable to speak? That could kind of become something you look at closely. There was another one um, about the actual physical positioning in the classroom. And they, you know, an elementary class, I think, and they have like time on the rug versus time at your desks. And the student who didn't physically like the kind of rug time, but they could still find ways to participate, even though they maybe weren't always comfortable in all of the physical arrangements. Another one that was about, uh, I think it was a student with dyscalculia trying to work her way through the function notation, and she would have some kind of techniques for herself to write out the function notation so that it was making sense to her. And so how she kind of experienced the symbols, and this, you know we kind of have these pretty complicated symbols that build up on each other, and then her experience trying to work through those symbols and make sense of it. So I would refer people to the paper to kind of see this in more detail. Um, but it was kind of interesting, and the, the main point was just this idea of bringing students' experiences to the front. So research into how students are actually experiencing classroom learning, mathematics learning, whether it's in formal or informal spaces, seems really important produces a lot of insight into uh, what the impact of our instructional choices might be. But then I presume it's, it then feeds back into, and we should use that to inform practice. So did they offer yeah, yeah. any thoughts about that? So what they really did was they offered us, those of us in the room, you know, the big old ballroom, uh, a chance to think about it and talk with each other about it. So after each story, they would give us some reflection questions, and we would talk about those, um, you know, with our groups. So it's kind of one of those things where there's maybe not a single answer because the whole point is this kind of individual student experiences and seeing them as individuals. So there's maybe not a single answer about you know what to do about it, but they would ask questions, and I have some here from Elham that, uh, for example, some of the reflective questions that they asked the group. So with this story, we'd like for you to consider a couple of questions. If Nora was in your class and you developed this insight into how she was thinking, how might it help you as a teacher to have this information? Um, and then just more broadly, as we launch into this talk, how often do we learn about our, how our students are experiencing our classroom? And how do we create the time and gain the trust for students to tell us? So to me, this plenary was just an interesting example of putting a thought in the minds of, you know, that the community that was there at PMNA about, 
you know, making sure we're not just focusing on achievement scores or teaching practices, but recognizing, again, kind of like Marta was, recognizing these individual learners who have their own experiences, their own emotions, and how important those are. And they didn't really provide specific things we should do, but I think just raising it and saying, hey, we often overlook this, you know, when we're doing our research. It's, I think, a good way to use that platform to, to bring it up. And I also appreciated that they drew across several different people's research and they pulled out these experiences from it. Lori, I think it was great how she looked at her own work critically. Here, I think it was nice about actually kind of surveying several people in the field and looking at where those experiences can be found. Yeah, that's interesting. Usually I assume at a plenary I'm going to learn a lot about that person's work, <laughs> and in this case they shared multiple people. Yeah, and it was you know it was definitely Corey and Elham, they were thinking about it, and we could see their perspective, but they were drawing it across several different people's research. Nice. So Saturday afternoon's plenary was uh, given by Dr. Maggie Neese, uh, Professor Emeritus at Oregon State, and she talked about her work in the naming of and development of the construct of TPAC, which is technological pedagogical content knowledge. She outlined her work on articulating a learning progression for teachers uh, in terms of a progression from their initially just kind of accepting technology as a, f a tool within their instruction all the way up through an advanced uh, embrace and, and use of technology in an integrated sense. Mm -hmm. And I was interested too where she talked about her online community that she's done with teachers from different parts of the world or across the country. Um, and since here we have our master's program, which also has teachers from across the country, it was interesting to hear her talk about how they developed a professional community online to think about critically and incorporate more technology into their teaching. And she said that has to begin with positioning them as learners as if they are students and then also supporting them and providing opportunities for genuine knowledge building among that community. I appreciated one uh, humorous quip in which she, she said there's individual and shared knowledge and the latter, she said, used to be called cheating. And she said, <laughs> just get over it. Yeah. <laughs> And then Jeremy Rochelle from Digital Promise Global, he was the discussant for this section, and he's done a lot of work on technology and mathematics education. And one thing I appreciated from Jeremy was him dispelling some of the myths about technology, like people thinking that technology is going to be the silver bullet that's really going to help their learning achievement scores go up. And he went through a few of these kind of myths and, and kind of just said, no, it's not as simple as that. It's a little bit more complicated, and there's a lot of things to think about. And she's not using technology as it's going to cause great teaching or cause great learning. Rather, technology is an infrastructure that if teachers pick it up and put it to use in meaningful ways, it can enable transformative teaching. And I think that's crucial in that I, I live in Silicon Valley, and I hear way too often that this, we're going to put this technology in the classroom, and wow, it's going to cause this amazing change. And I've, I've never seen it. I've been working in this field so many years. I've never seen technology as a cause. One thing I sometimes hear, I wouldn't hear this crowd, I don't think, is, well, today's teachers are growing up with cell phones. They're digital natives. Bingo, we're done. Well, no, that's technological knowledge. That's only that circle detached from everything. It doesn't relate to how we teach with the content or teach with the pedagogy or put it all together. And sometimes I talk to tech people and they say, well, hey, we've gotten all the gear into the classrooms. Let's show how much gear we have. Look how many laptops. We've given everybody laptops. We're done. Well, no, we're not. Or we've taken our paper curriculum and we've put lots of widgets in it. Bingo. We're done. Well, no, we're not. Or we say, hey, pre-service programs now have an elective course. 
We have a course on technology. You can take it if you want as a teacher in preparation. We say, bingo, we're done. Well, none of those things are gonna do what Maggie has pointed out, is create this developmental trajectory for teachers that pulls the necessary knowledge, abilities, and uh, ability to enact this, pulls it together. Jeremy was actually the lead author on the compendium chapter on technology for learning mathematics. Oh, cool. The final plenary that took place uh, was Andy Norton from Virginia Tech University and Julie Sarama from the University of Denver. And uh, they talked about two different things. Andy started off by just asking the question, what is the nature of mathematics? This is a big philosophical question. It's in mathematics and math ed. And a lot of people have this platonic vision where math is in the universe and we're just kind of uncovering it. But that's it's the way that the universe works or it's the way that logic works. And so it's out there. Um, but Andy took a different perspective that a lot of people take in social constructivism, radical constructivism. A lot of people on the education side don't view mathematics as platonic. They view it as a human construction. Mathematics are the patterns and how we describe the way that we interact with and see the world. Um, it's not in the world itself. And he talks about how there are psychological, mental actions that people can do. Like they can combine things together, um, but then they can reverse that and they can separate them out. Or they can take an object and they can reflect it. They can also reflect it back. Um, so there's these mental actions that can be reversed and they have certain features and people can start to notice patterns in those mental actions. And those patterns and structures give this kind of power and substance to what mathematics is. So here's Andy kind of describing a little bit of that. Of course, his paper has a lot more detail about it. Talking about math, what is it that unites our field of study? We're, we're math educators. What is it that's special about mathematics that makes our study different than it might if we were studying some other field? And even among other sciences, I think mathematics is special because it has this kind of internal power plus this application power. And, but on the other hand, mathematics seems so disjointed. You've got all these different kinds of objects of study. What is it that unites them? And at least for me, there's a common answer, that it's our own coordination of mental actions that both gives mathematics its power and unites mathematics whether we're talking about shape or number or algebra or something else. And then following Andy was Julie Sarama from uh, the University of Denver, and she talked about her work that's been going on for quite a long time on learning trajectories, and she laid out in detail some learning trajectories for counting and early arithmetic, but also just the idea of the way she approaches it, of having students, learners move forward uh, up levels and developing their thinking, and she made the points that the instruction is very important, that just putting manipulatives or putting materials in front of the students and letting them play around with them is not going to necessarily move them up the trajectory that she laid out. But she said carefully designed instruction and certain opportunities that are guided by a knowledgeable teacher, those can actually move the student through the learning trajectory. Um, she presented some of her research where they've done interventions to try to help students move along the trajectory. So it's all in that sort of ballpark of research. But she also talked about, you know, the idea of people being born with basically having sort of inborn skills and perceptions, things that they recognize, and how those are not deterministic. There's still this big role for instruction for teachers for experiences to help them move forward on the trajectory. We have things where we have innate competencies. Three, six month olds are sensitive to quantity. They're sensitive to quantity, and it's, and, it's, and it's visual. They wire up these little babies, and they show them uh, a photo of a tube, and it'd be two yellow triangles. 
two green triangles, two blue rectangles, two Mickey Mouses, two whatever, and they start showing. And eventually, the thing, no matter how novel the color shape changes, all the children's uh, physiological responses dampen. And then they show them three of something they saw, three yellow triangles, they put back up. Now we're sensitive, we're sensitive to quantity. So they do things with infants where you hide quantities, like two, and you add one behind a box. And then if you take out four, the children are surprised. We have innate competencies that serve as these initial um, bootstraps. We also probably have initial dispositions towards certain ways of thinking mathematically, towards thinking about things mathematically at all, recognizing pattern. However, these are not determined. These don't determine the child's life in mathematics. That is way more shaped by the environment, which is the next slide. Different developmental courses are possible within these constraints depending on the individual, environmental, and societal confluences. So um, our goal is to build on that innate, on those innate understandings. So that's just a really brief, quick kind of run through of the plenaries. Um, and, you know, we didn't really do them justice, but some of our thoughts about them, what we remember from them. And we didn't even get into most of the other formats of, of presentations of the conference. Yeah. We said a little bit about working groups, but there's also the research reports, which are the kind of longer 40 minute presentation. Mm -hmm. There are brief research reports, a shorter mm -hmm. 20 minute. Yeah, you share, you share that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a 40-minute session, but you'll have two brief research reports, 20 right. minutes, 20 minutes. And then uh, two sessions of posters as well. Yeah, which are actually kind of fun to go around, hear the conversations that are happening. Um, yeah, the plenaries are only the first few pages of the proceedings, and then there's all this work, you know, research that people are doing, things that people are investigating that take place in those other formats. Even the, the poster has a one-page. Yeah, in the proceedings. Um, so, yeah, if people are thinking about P, M, and A, you know, the research reports which have 40 minutes at the conference, they also get eight pages um, in the proceedings. The brief research reports have 20 minutes at the conference, they have four pages in the proceedings. And then yeah, the posters, they get one page, which is pretty short, but you can at least say what your topic is or something. But mm -hmm. the posters are fun. Uh, I enjoy just the mingling, kind of going around and then it's really a conversational format. You get to just strike up a conversation with the person at their poster and hear right from them about what they're working on. So I do enjoy that format, um, something that a lot of conferences have, but I enjoy that chance to interact with people. And the yeah, the working groups um, having multiple days where you can return to that group and keep pushing the ideas forward or keep thinking together. So How did this come about, by the way? The working groups? Mm -hmm. Usually it's a team, but it doesn't have to be, but a team will actually propose the idea and say, we want to convene a working group to tackle a question or an issue or to share some things that we're dealing with. And it's, it's usually the hook is it's something that multiple people can kind of sink their teeth into or that they can contribute to in a community kind of setting. Um, but those have a proposal just like everything else. You can propose a working group. And if it reviews well, if it seems like, oh, yeah, that's a good topic to bring people together Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to work on it, you know, then that can get into the conference. And that's the kind of thing that sometimes like edited volumes come out of. Yeah, yeah. Articles, like sometimes people will co-author things in following up on that. They might get an edited book or a special issue of a journal. Those have all 
come out of working groups in the past. Sometimes a grant proposal will actually come out too. Like, oh yeah, we need to study this. We feel like we have kind of clarified our idea. Let's partner together on a proposal. And as actually Marta Seville explained, sometimes entire new conferences, I think, come out of that. For example, the Mathematics Education and Society Conference, uh, she explained, was born at PME a PME in a conference. Right. Is there something that's missing from this group of people that we could, you know, make another space for um, to take it on fully? Yeah, I just enjoy the conference experience because of the ideas that are swirling around. You can hear what people are working on. You can have these conversations. And you can really kind of tap into what's happening in mathematics education research right now. And we're excited next year, or in 2019, to be hosting PME&A. Um, we have a really great site in St. Louis right next to the St. Louis Arch it's a brand new green space park that goes right down to the Mississippi River, and our conference location is right on that, where you'll be able to walk you know, through, see the arch, see the river, and also right on some good streets with restaurants, bars, and that kind of thing. But in addition to the location, we're just excited to bring back together the math ed researchers. And a host of plenary speakers who are sure to wow audiences. (laughs) We're working on that right now, but we're pretty excited about it. So if you are interested in uh, coming to PME&A in 2019, it's going to take place in November, November 14th to 17th. But the dates you actually need to know about are the proposal deadlines. Um, So if you want to actually come and share your work or um, be in the proceedings for the conference... February 15th is the important day, right after Valentine's Day. So you can get your Valentine's stuff done and then hit submit the next day on your proposal. Um, February 15th for research reports and brief research reports. And then March 1st, you have a little bit of more time if you want to do a poster proposal or a working group proposal. Those will be due on March 1st. Um, but we're really excited about it. We love this conference, as we said before. We're really looking forward to the next one. And we have some we have some good things up our sleeves. There might be some, some math ed puzzles laying around and some, some good conversation starters that we're going to kind of sprinkle into the conference. I think it's going to be a good time. Yes, we're excited to host next year. And uh, if you want to check out the website, it is up and available already at 2019.pmena.org. That's 2019.pmena.org. Thank you.